Ecclesiastes 4. That's about there in my Bible, about halfway. Of course, if you have a study Bible, who knows where it is, really. And I'll read the entire chapter, 16 verses. Then I returned and considered all the oppression that is done under the sun. And look, the tears of the oppressed. But they have no comforter. On the side of their oppressors, there is power, but they have no comforter. Therefore, I praised the dead who were already dead more than the living who are still alive. Yet better than both is he who has never existed, who has not seen the evil work that is done under the sun. Again, I saw that for all toil and every skillful work, a man is envied by his neighbor. This also is vanity and grasping for the wind. The fool folds his hands and consumes his own flesh. Better a handful with quietness than both hands full together with toil and grasping for the wind. Then I returned and saw vanity under the sun. There is one alone without companion. He has neither son nor brother, yet there is no end to all his labors, nor is his eye satisfied with riches. But he never asks, for whom do I toil and deprive myself of good? This also is vanity and a grave misfortune. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. For if they fall, one will lift up his companion. But woe to him who is alone when he falls, for he has no one to help him up. Again, if two lie down, they will keep warm. But how can one be warm alone? Though one may be overpowered by another, two can withstand him and a threefold cord is not quickly broken. Better a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who will be admonished no more. For he comes out of prison to be king, although he was born poor in his kingdom. I saw all the living who walk under the sun. They were with the second youth who stands in his place. There was no end of all the people over whom he was made king. Yet those who come afterward will not rejoice in him, Surely this also is vanity and grasping for the wind. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we pray that you would open our understanding, that we might see and hear and know that this is your voice speaking to us. We pray, Father, that you would uh, move us in ways that only you uh, can do, and that we would be changed by our presence here and by your presence here. We thank you for your word in Christ's name. Amen. We're in the third message. We're in the fourth chapter of Ecclesiastes, and we're only starting the third message, so we are covering ground quickly. And uh, we slowed down again today. We covered 41 verses the first week, 25 last week, and now 16. And so I described it as a plane, and we keep dropping and dropping and dropping in elevation. We see more and more of the ground. The first week was vain repetition. The second week was purpose and meaning. These two messages gave you two entirely different views of our world, but both of them are rational. Vain repetition went from 1.1 1, 1 to 2.23, and purpose and meaning went from 2.24 to 3.22. The first, vain repetition, presents life as ultimately meaningless. And in this earth, you, it can lead you to despair if you have that as your conclusion. The second purpose sees purpose and meaning in everything, leading to joy in all that you do. You might want to choose 
one of these as being right, but they're both right. It is a matter of which perspective you view life from. So the main lesson of Ecclesiastes was a man's got to know his limitations. And it's presented in two parts, first part, second part, first half of Ecclesiastes, second half of Ecclesiastes. And it is that man is limited in his ability. He cannot do all that he wants to do. And that is represented by the phrase grasping for the wind. Man grasps for the wind. And what do you get when you grasp for the wind? A whole lot of nothing. So nine times Solomon uses that phrase in the first half to describe man's life. The second half is filled with I don't know. Man can't know. You cannot know. Do you know? All of these rhetorical and statements of fact that man is limited in his knowledge, in what he can know about this world. So now today we step past the worldviews. We step into the text and now we'll continue that for the next several weeks. And so we are now looking at pieces of Ecclesiastes that kind of remind you of Proverbs. And that's why with cursory readings of Ecclesiastes, when you're a young believer, you just don't really know what to make of it, but you get to this and it's like, oh, well, this is kind of a lot like Proverbs now. I can begin to see some tangible thing to grasp onto. But I believe it's different. It's shared for a different reason, and we'll get into that. There are five sections that I'll cover from 1 to 16. The first section covers verses 1 through 3, and that is about oppression. And then verses 4 through 6, and that's about envying others, and he shares some proverbs on work. And then we have verses 7 and 8, and here he talks about this grace, grave misfortune of someone having his priorities screwed up. And then we have 9 through 12, in which he shares Proverbs on life and relationships, and he makes uh, unequivocal statements saying this is good and this is bad. You can infer that anyway, the bad. He, he implies it. And then you have the last portion, 13 to 16, and this seems out of place. And actually, on, when you consult commentaries, uh, some commentators agree that this is out of place. They don't understand how it fits in, but they tend to include it in four because it doesn't fit even more in the next portion in five. But yet, I believe the way I've chosen to view this, it fits very well, and so we'll cover that. I'll cover these one at a time, these little sections, and then we'll kind of knit them together at the end. So first, in verses one through three, there is this oppression. Then I considered and con all the, uh, then I returned and considered all the oppression that is done under the sun. It is almost as if Solomon is seeing this in a vision. It's so graphic, it's so literal, and he is moved so emotionally by what he's seen. Twice he repeats that phrase, they have no comforter. You can sense his compassion for these people that are suffering. He said, on the side of their oppressors there is power, but then he repeats, they have no comforter. Now, I want you to look at this text if you can see it. If you have a Bible, look at it. It's in your bulletin, actually. So look at this phrase. 
Then I returned and considered all the oppression that is done under the sun, and look, the tears of the oppressed, but they have no comforter. On the side of their oppressors there is power, but they have no comforter. Now, I propose to you that that sentence doesn't make a lot of sense. Can you figure out why? Why doesn't that sentence make sense? I believe you can improve upon this sentence, and commentators do. They assume certain things that aren't in the text. They assume what I'm going to say next is the case, and it's not. It's not what Solomon said. So, I've given you time to think. Let me just be quiet. Think about it. If you, don't, if you think you have an answer, raise your hand. This is like school. If you think you have an answer, I want you to raise your hand. What puzzles you about these two verses? I know some of you are thinking it, if, and you think you might be wrong, and so you don't want to raise your hand and have me call on you. I won't call on anybody. If you think you know, raise your hand. I won't call on you. Okay. We've got a couple. People won't even raise their hand. I promise you, I won't call on you. But what, I uh, cross my heart, you know? Okay, okay. Let's, let's talk about this then. Let me ask you a question. I think for those of you that might be puzzled, this will help. What would oppressed people need more than comfort? If you're oppressed, what do you want? Rescue. You want rescued. You want Superman to fly in and pull you off that ledge, right? You're in trouble. You need help. Help me. Help me. What is Solomon saddest about, though? What does he express sadness about? They have no comforter. It doesn't make sense. So, see, if, if he were to proclaim that they have no Savior, then it makes a lot more sense. But they have no comforter. So, see, I'm going to give you a reason why it then makes sense and why it fits into the whole theme of the chapter. Uh, commentators just read right through that, and then they, they speak of the fact that he's lamenting that they have no Savior. It's, there isn't any talk of that here. Uh, it's just amazing to me that people will spend months writing a book, and they just make such an obvious mistake. It, it causes me to question their credibility and everything. But so, they want a hero. They want a champion. They want a protector. They want Superman. But yet what Solomon laments is that they have no comforter. Now, in the midst of this people that are being oppressed, who would likely provide comfort? Is it the prison guards that are beating people? No, no, no. Who provides comfort? The oppressed. The oppressed comfort one another. But he's lamenting the fact that these people are not even comforting each other. They are so oppressed, they are so beaten down, they are so without hope that they've lost even this human emotion, this compassion to reach out to those people that are being oppressed and comfort them. So then, then you can make sense of verses 2 and 3 because the same commentators that assume he's talking about salvation now go to this and they don't know what to make of it. Verses 2 and 3 are painful. They're painful. Therefore, I praised the dead who were already dead more than the living who are still alive. Yet better than both is he who has never existed, who has not seen the evil work that is done under the sun. Oppression is evil. It is, in many ways, undiluted 
unadulterated evil. And yet, it is so common in our world. I looked up genocides, and we have had so many, and yet in recent decades, there have been so many that have killed so many people. But you know what I found most interesting is that on the official genocides list maintained by the United Nations, China's great leap forward and cultural revolution aren't even there. They killed 50 to 70 million people in an 11-year period, and the United Nations couldn't care less. Why? Because China's one of the big five in the United Nations. They can't go poking a finger in China's eye, and so it tells you that you cannot trust the United Nations. There are so many, I don't even need to go into them, but you know, you have Cambodia, you have Russia, you have uh, Vietnam, you had Rwanda, uh, you had Armenia 100 years ago. There are just so many that where hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people were killed by their people's own governments. Now, what did Solomon say here? He said, I praised the dead who were already dead more than the living who are still alive. See, he sees... In this vision, I believe, he sees this oppression, just the absence of all good. And he has such pity for these people. He just wants them to be put out of their misery. They just need to die. They just need to have never existed to be able to overcome the depth of the oppression that he sees. Now, is what Solomon said wise? Absolutely not. Solomon is a man. He's not God. He can't speak for God. God has created these people. This oppression that these people are experiencing is real. And yet it is experienced in the flesh with a God-created order. So yeah, God is not pleased with this. But he's not going to allow a Solomon to say, this ought not be, they, they should never have existed. We see other people in Scripture who get to this point, who say these things. Job lamented the day of his birth. He wished the stars were extinguished. You have Ezekiel wishing, or uh, I'm sorry, you have Elijah wishing that he is dead instead of having to face down Jezebel. You have Jeremiah wishing that he was dead instead of having to face the tormentors that he was facing. It is not expected, but we can understand why Solomon voiced these words. We don't have to agree with him. And in that emotion, there's really no need to argue with him. He's wrong, and I believe he knew it. It's just his heart goes out to these people. But his type of thinking leads to the same type of thinking that leads to putting people to death. He doesn't realize it, but that's the logical end. I'm going to save these people from their their pain. I'm going to put them to death. Well, first, I'll let them do it. Let them do it if they want to. But, you know, governments are made to make decisions for people that can't really any longer make decisions for themselves. So they just don't know they need to be put out of their misery. On the battlefield, you have soldiers that are writhing in their own blood and organs. They're not going to live. Is it okay, then, for their own comrades to put a gun down there and shoot them? No. No, never, never. We don't have that role on this earth. And when we deign to exercise that role, we've got these massive killings. 
As soon as we appropriate God's responsibilities on earth, we become tyrants, and we start killing people for our pleasure, let alone for their benefit. That soldier on the field, he wants him dead. Why does he want him dead? Is it to put him out of his misery? Or to benefit me? I don't want to hear that guy screaming anymore. I want to put him out of his misery. See, that goes unsaid. It's all for his benefit. Oh, no, it's only for him. It's not for me. I wouldn't do anything so selfish. No, not until it becomes government-ordered. Then we start seeing things like that. So now, uh, number two, the second section here. So we move on to verses four through six. Now we see here this comes back from that precipice of evil. Now we're just dealing with kind of everyday evil. Evil that is, boy, you know, not going to make me sweat, not going to make me worry, not going to make me have nightmares in the night. So what he talks about here is envy. I saw that for all the toil and every skilled work, a man is envied by his neighbor. This also is vanity and grasping for the wind. Now, you've probably heard that in many primitive cultures, there is no concept of private property. You can't retain private property. People will just feel free to borrow whatever it is you have and keep it until they have it appropriated from someone else. So it is in a culture that respects private property that private property exists. In a culture that has no respect for private property, it can't exist because there's really no incentive for you to attempt to acquire any private property. So see, we benefit in this country immensely. All of these many uh, God-hating people that live in our country benefit immensely by the fact that we had been a God-honoring country and respected private property. And so they're along for the ride now. But God sanctioned private property right in the garden, didn't he? He said, all of this I'm sharing with you, except that. That's mine. You don't touch that. Well, actually, God didn't say you don't touch it. I think Adam said that to Eve. But Eve didn't obey either God or Adam. So private property started with God. He has ordained it. Yet, we live at a time when private property is under attack. What's yours is mine, and what's mine is mine, if I can keep it. The next verse, though, says this. The fool folds his hands and consumes his own flesh. See, we've gone from an obliteration of private property to the fool who won't even do anything to feed himself. In other words, if I can't have any private property, well, what is there even? Why should I even work? Why don't I just get kept? Why don't I just get taken care of? And we see that. It's, it's prevalent in our world. We see people that just want to be kept. There are so many well-meaning Christians caught up in things like open-door missions when what you're doing is extending and catering to many people that have chosen a lifestyle that they're enjoying. They enjoy having all these handouts. They regard it as your responsibility to hand out to them. And yet I see so many well-meaning Christians that just go, why are they doing it though? Because it makes them feel good about themselves. They're not doing it primarily for that person. They're doing it for themselves. Again, it has to do more with selfishness than with true selflessness. If you were truly selfless, you'd try to get that person off the street, off this dependent lifestyle that he's caught in. And many do. Some do. And that's wonderful. So now what's the answer then? Better a handful with quietness than both hands full together with toil and grasping of the wind. That's verse 6. Better a handful with quietness 
than both hands full. And there it speaks of like grasping as much as you can with toil and grasping for the wind. So see, you, I, we are all to be content with the handful. The Jews in their wanderings for the 40 years had a daily illustration of this in the manna falling down from heaven. Scripture says that those who collected little did not collect too little. Those who collected much did not collect too much. God was schooling them in not being greedy. And they dealt with it every day. Every day they'd go out and collect this manna. And they, those that were worried, that wanted to have enough, would gather a lot. And it's almost as if God was rewarding the lazy with, oh, I'm just going to get this. Oh, but God made it last. But see, what he, was, what he was rewarding was faith, faith in him, faith in his, in his providing this. So see, the handful practice, that practice of, of taking only a handful, it is to combat greed, yet it still can't combat envy, really. I'm sorry, it, it combats envy, but uh, yet greed is still at work in our hearts, So envy and greed go together, but I think there's a way in which this handful can combat, well, especially it can combat it when it's all the same thing. We've all got manna. Why would I knock you on the head to take your manna when it's the same thing I have? It's only when we have different things that we might then get into envy. But then we get into the next section, starting at verse 8. There is one alone without companion. Now, this is, he says, a grave misfortune at the end of this story, uh, at the end of verse 8. I returned and saw vanity under the sun. There is one alone without companion. Now, we're tempted to refer to this man as a lonely man. But is he lonely? I don't think he's lonely. He's very happy with his own company. There is one alone without companion. He has neither son nor brother, yet there is no end to all his toil, nor is his eye satisfied with riches, But he never asks, for whom do I toil and deprive myself of good? This also is vanity and a grave misfortune. This is a man who likes what he's doing. It is ultimately not satisfying because it says, nor is his eye satisfied with riches. This is a greedy man and most likely very, very selfish and self-centered. And yet, uh, Solomon says, that it is foolishness. For whom do I toil and deprive myself of good? He never asks that. And this is interesting. He never asks that, and Solomon uh, puts that out there as something that is illogical, fundamentally illogical. This man is working so hard in life, but for what? He's so greedy that he doesn't even really like using his accumulated wealth for himself. He's miserly, yet he's going to lose it all with death. He won't even have a say over who it goes to, perhaps. But it's interesting. I think this is very interesting because, see, Solomon is pointing out the the, uh, illogic of this man's actions. That doesn't really make sense. But let's throw some sons in here. So now the man is wealthy and greedy, and now he has a purpose, right? Now it means everything because now he gets to pass it on to his sons. Now there's logic behind it. But is that meaning? Is that purpose? Because if you were to ask the sons, why are you doing it now? Well, because I have sons. Oh, 
why are you grandsons doing it now? Oh, because I have sons. So see, then it just postpones asking that ultimate question. Why are you doing this? Why are you saving this? There must be a goal. Muslims have a goal. They want to conquer the world for Allah. They want everybody bowing the knee to Allah. They have a goal, and they're pursuing that goal, and they are sweeping across and crushing secular nations like ours with that goal. Why? Because their goal is meaty, tangible, measurable. Whereas we materialists, we just have these nebulous goals. I want to be more comfortable tomorrow than I was today. I'm going to go home and I'm going to adjust my thermostat a few degrees and I'm going to make myself more comfortable tomorrow than I was today. That's my ultimate goal for living. I'm going to make myself comfortable. I'm going to make money. I'm going to pile money up in my basement. I'm going to fill pipes and safes full of it. That's my goal, right? We have goals. We have goals. But see, it's interesting that it is the more nebulous goal, like the Muslims wanting to conquer the earth for, for Allah, or us wanting to see the whole world bow the knee to Christ that was so well described earlier, the more nebulous goals are actually the more reasonable goals, the more, the more uh, sane goals that we might have. Why? Why is that? Because they're bigger than us. Your goal must be bigger than you to be a tangible goal. If it's only you, it doesn't make sense. If it's only your posterity even, it doesn't make sense. So you see that. Solomon views this man as, as illogical and a grave misfortune, but in the first lesson I asked about the whole meaning behind the vain repetition is what? To ask the question, why do I exist? So you have to get to that. This man wasn't asking that question. Why am I doing what I'm doing? But yet Solomon doesn't acknowledge that everybody needs to ask that question of everything that they do. Because yes, it's most silly when we see this man living like he is, but yet to a great extent, many people live like that. It's just not obvious on the surface. Okay, the next section, starting at verse 9. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. For if they fall, one will lift up his companion, but woe to him who is alone when he falls, for he has no one to help him up. Again, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one be warm alone? Though one may be overpowered by another, two can withstand him, and a threefold cord is not quickly broken. So we have a statement in verse 9. Two are better than one. They have a good reward for their labor, and then he goes on to prove it. So he proves it with all of these, for if they fall... For he, uh, again, if two lie down together, he gives them these reasons. So in other words, if they fall, one will lift up his companion. Assistance. Now, this is not just a wife or anything like that. It's, it could be a good friend. It's anybody. It's us as community. But it's, but it's two people that help each other. There are these benefits to it. Uh, a few years ago, there was this uh, uh, traveler out in Moab. I believe he was hiking, and he got stuck. A rock shifted, and his arm got stuck under the rock. He was trapped there for five days, and finally he realized, I'm not going to be found. And then he cut his arm off and, and walked to freedom. It took him eight hours to get to freedom. But yet, the, what is the lesson from that? What is the lesson from that man's experience for us? You know, I mean, it's, it's 
amazing that a man can saw his arm off with a pocket knife and walk eight hours to safety. I agree. But the lesson is that ought not to be necessary if you can avoid it. And, that, and that's the lesson he took away from it. He never goes anywhere now. He likes hiking alone still, but he'll always tell somebody, this is where I'm going. This is how you can find me if I don't show up. So he's acting much more wisely now, whereas until that point, he just liked people not knowing where he's going. He just liked being this will-o'-the-wisp that could come and go. But while he was out there for 127 hours, he thought about that quite a bit, and he came away changed. He wanted to be different. He needed help at times, and he admitted it. The next one is for warmth. If two lie down together, they'll keep warm. Now, it's hard for us to relate to this until we, like, lose power. Uh, like 10, 12 years ago, there was a, a few families in our church that didn't have power for like 10 days. And it was okay when the temperature was up around 50 degrees, but when it got down below uh, freezing, some of those people were very, very uncomfortable. And that's the way it is for most people in the world even now, and it's the way that has been for most of the people throughout the world forever. So we alone really are so... Uh, enculturated to comforts that we find it hard to relate to this. Camping. Think camping. You know, when you're out there camping, I remember as a kid thinking, why are we out here? We were in a place called the Grand Canyon of Pennsylvania, and we were freezing our behinds off. (laughs) And my poor oldest brother was throwing up. He was sick, and he's throwing up in our little pop-up camper, and he kept throwing up all night, and we're trying to deal with yucky smelling blankets and we're all freezing don't want to get out from under the yucky smelling blankets even I mean that was a pretty miserable time and that was just once in my life can you imagine living like that every day where you wake up freezing wake up like the mountain men with the frost all over their faces from all the snow getting into their cabin overnight just amazing and yet that's why people would travel together all of these appear to be people on a journey they're traveling together for safety so Safety and strength. One may be overpowered, two can withstand them. And so when I am walking away from work, I'm always alone. And if I see somebody that I know is going to hit me up for money, they always avoid the ones that are walking with others. And just just last week, some guy, he walked past two people here, eight feet behind him. I can see him targeting me, you know. And then he comes running over, you know. He's got a shoe in his hand. He's got one in his foot and one in his hand. I, I don't know. They always have a story. And uh, he said he needed bus fare to get to Lincoln. I said, sorry, pal, I'm not going to help you. I I offered a lady once to drive her to Lincoln because she said she had to go visit her daughter in the hospital. I said, oh, that's horrible. I said, okay, I forget who I was with. Was I with you, Gary? I said, I'll take you to Lincoln. Oh, that's okay, you know. I just need five bucks, man. I don't need a ride. (laughs) So it's like, oh, this is serious stuff here. I'll take you to Lincoln. Okay, so there's safety and strength. Uh, one of the memorable scenes from a kid when I was watching Bonanza was where little Joe's all hot-headed, you know, little Joe, well, if you've seen Bonanza. It, it, you kids, it wasn't color, so you kids can maybe watch a few. You can stand a few. But uh, little Joe is the hothead. He's the youngest of the three sons. And he's arguing with his pa because little Joe wanted to go out and fight somebody. And the pa was worried he'd get killed. And so the pa handed him a pencil. He said, little Joe, break that. Little Joe looks at him, break it. Then he handed him three pencils. He said, break these together. Little Joe's like this. He can't break the three pencils. He, he, was, he was proving this statement in, in Ecclesiastes. And so then the Paul, of course, told him, hey, you know, we're family. We stick together. We're, here, we're in this. And so, see, there is strength in numbers. Now, 
Verse 9 starts out like this, and I want to go back to it. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. Some commentators take this to be a fourth statement. See, there was a statement about assistance and help, comfort and warmth, and safety and strength. They have this as another one that's kind of more nebulous, just more general. I don't think so. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. There's a statement being made here. Two are better, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. What labor? What labor are we talking about? Why are two generally better than one? And what is it that they're rewarded with? And what is the labor? I talked about the rewards already. The rewards are someone saving you from harm. Someone helping you up if you fall into a ditch or get pinned by a rock. Warmth at night. Those are the rewards. But what is the labor? I believe I know. Does maintaining a friendship come at no cost to us? No, there's a cost to maintaining a relationship, maintaining a friendship. You have to share yourself. You have to reach out to this person or these other people. That's labor. You're expending labor for that. But what Solomon is saying is that it's worth it. So not only is there this friendship and acceptance and this way you can spend time with one another, the joys of life, but there's also protection from harm. There is safety in numbers, and there is safety in these beneficial relationships. Okay, the last one, the one that maybe doesn't seem to fit really well, and this is about this transition of a kingdom. Better a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who will be admonished no more. For he comes out of prison to be king, although he was born poor in his kingdom. I saw all the living who walk under the sun. They were with the second youth who stands in his place. There was no end of all the people over whom he was made king, yet those who come afterward will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and grasping for the wind. Now first, let me clarify, I believe that there are only two people in this story. There's the king and there's the youth. They refer to the king when he was a youth, and so there's a different time frame involved, but I believe you're talking about only the king and the youth that eventually takes over his throne. Both are introduced in verse 13. There is a poor and wise youth. There is an old and foolish king who will be admonished no more. So then, verse 14, he, I believe that's referring to the king, comes out of prison to be king, although he was born poor in his kingdom. Then I saw all the living who walk under the sun. They were with the second youth. So now they're referring to this young man that took that former young man's place, who has now grown into a foolish old king who refuses to be admonished. So we've had an ascension to the throne of this young youth who came out of prison who's very wise, precocious maybe. You know, it's not typical that the Bible refers to the young as wise and the old as foolish, although, of course, we know it's possible. We see it here in this story. Verse 16 says this. Well, look, 15. I saw all the living who walk under the sun. I mean, that's a lot of people. They were with the second youth who stands in his place. In other words, they were supporting him. They admire this young man. They think he's going to help them. There was no end of all the people over whom he was made king. Yet those who come afterward will not rejoice in him. 
Surely this is vanity. Those who come after him will not rejoice in him. Eventually, this young man, and he has these followers that practically worship him, they admire him so much, yet as they fade away, others come in that haven't personally benefited and seen this. And by this time, there's been a change in his character. He's following the path of the foolish old king, and he also is becoming difficult. I gave you a handout. I don't know if some of you have it. I don't know if any of you have been filling it out. I barely give you a chance unless you ignore me. But, uh, and you shouldn't do that, of course. This, at the bottom, reflects, in my opinion, what's going on with this last parable. You have this disdain that the ruler here has in the top left for his people. It alienates them. They want someone new. They come over here, and they now revere this young boy who starts out good. But this reverence goes to his head. And so then he becomes arrogant, which leads him to have disdain for his people that are then alienated. It is a vicious cycle. This is part of the vain repetition that we covered in the first lecture, the first sermon. And it's just human nature. And what Solomon is pointing out is that look at the hope that these people have, that have made this young boy, this precocious young wise boy, who has learned much through his years in prison apparently, look how much he has learned, look how much we can look to him as our leader. But then, instead of giving him respect, which is returned with mutual respect, you instead elevate him, you adore him, you honor him, you worship him. Well, he's a fallen human. And so that all goes to his head, and he now begins to oppress you. He takes you for granted. He assumes and presumes a lot upon you and upon the relationship until enough people are fed up with him, and they get another young youth out of prison. See, because now it's other young people, other people that now can look to this. This ignorance just keeps recurring, recurring, recurring. The New King James subtitle on that uh, is Popularity Passes Away. And I think it's more than popularity. This is hero worship. This is looking to our political leaders as saviors. It is as flawed as it is predictable, but yet there are always new ignorant people coming up to replace the former ignorant people that have been wizened by their experience. And as the saying goes, they, are, they that are ignorant of history are doomed to repeat it. And so we as a culture are doomed to see this occur over and over and over again because very few people read and very few people absorb the lessons of having read. Now, I told you that all of this is uh, related and the sermon title probably tipped you off, although that's a little ambiguous. You could take that multiple ways. But all of chapter 4, I believe, relates to a unified theme, and the theme is human relations, humans in relationships. As a matter of fact, I believe the first three chapters of Ecclesiastes presented these two diametrically opposed worldviews, and then the very first thing Solomon chooses to attack then is the topic of human relations, which is the second table of the Ten Commandments. So see, it's important. He's 
shared this worldview without God. He shared this worldview with God. Now he goes to the second table. Now we're going to talk about people relating to people. All five of them revolve around this. First, we have the oppression. See, people are oppressed by people. So this is a bad relationship that these people are in. And yet, based on that graphic that I was talking about, it's almost inevitable that people that elevate their leaders to godlike status will be oppressed by them. When you see how the people of North Korea worship their Kim, Kim, Kim leaders, it just sickens you. I watched a special a few years ago where North Korea finally allowed a bunch of Western doctors in to solve people's glaucoma. All these poor people, glaucoma has been solvable for decades, all these poor people have glaucoma and they're blind and they're all being operated on. Well, they showed this one elderly woman, she's probably about in her 60s, and as soon as she can see, she runs over to the wall and grabs the picture of Kim and takes it down and starts kissing it and bowing to it and thanking him for having given her her vision back. It is just revolting. Now, I don't know if that was just for show. It might have been. I mean, these people are just have eyes everywhere. And if you don't show the proper adulation for the leader, for the fearless leader, maybe you're next. So they live in fear for their lives all the time. But it's best to mask any, any concerns you have about your fearless leader being anything less than a god. In The Road to Serfdom, and that's why I brought it up here, there is a quote. And actually, there's a whole chapter that Hayek devotes to the topic, Why the Worst Get on Top. Why Evil Men Rise to Positions of Ultimate Power. And it's a great chapter. It's very, very logical. I, I believe, now he wrote this, uh, what, 80 years ago, 75 years ago. And so I, th- I, I think there can be an adjustment to this, one of the arguments in the chapter, but I won't go into that. But this is what he said. Oh, this actually, he's quoting from Reinhold Niebuhr from another book called Moral Man and Immoral Society. There is an increasing tendency among modern men, so this is in the 1930s, modern men to imagine themselves ethical because they have delegated their vices to larger and larger groups. Let me repeat that. This, this is actually quite profound. There is an increasing tendency among modern men to imagine themselves ethical because they have delegated their vices to larger and larger groups. In other words, if I have a sin that... I recognize as wrong, if the whole society accepts it as right, who am I to argue with my society? And so now I need not feel guilt from this sin that until yesterday I thought was an evil. Oh, it's not. This is wonderful. I feel so much better today. So see, there's this envy of others, for instance. Oh, no, no, no. That's not envy. That's just you wanting your fair share. It's those people that are misbehaving. We need to go take from them so that we can share with you. It's just Robin Hood all over again. That's all it is. It's not about rapacious greed. It's not about theft. It's not about cruelty. It's about fairness. And once we define fairness as appropriating persons or property, then it all is better. 
So see, excessive greed leads to odd behavior, though. And we see it in our society. We see it in this man who just wants wealth, wants wealth, wants wealth. So see, there is a flip side to this. We can want our wealth so much that we look past our obligations to our fellow man. And yet, it is yet our property. We should have the freedom to do with it as we will, as God did in not allowing us to eat from the tree of good and evil without repercussions. So mutually beneficial behavior is then shown by example in our story here. And so we see that two is better than one, and then we have these various reasons for why. So we show oppression in that first part. We show the envy of others and rapacious greed for more, and thus leading to us mistreating our fellow man when we really shouldn't. There is excessive greed even leading to odd antisocial behavior, withdrawing from society, as you ought not do. And then there is this mutually beneficial behavior, all relations again, all of these are relations, culminating with how we tend to choose political leaders unwisely because we are expecting more from this human relationship than we ought to have. Our founding fathers had it right. You've got to bind these evil men down with the powers of the Constitution, the chains of the Constitution. And yet anymore, they're just being ripped away. Why? Because they're inefficient. We want an efficient government. We want a government that can do things the right way. And so that why, that's why we have a president who is uh, supported by extensive personality worshipers who just feels he can do anything he wants, and he will not be bound by something as trivial as the law, as the Constitution. And yet, what is sad is that he's not alone. We have the same thing, and it was mentioned earlier, on the flip side. We've got the conservatives, even Christians, that are indulging in this same political attempt at salvation, as opposed to turning to the God of our, wor of our universe. So, see, we, yes, fight on this earth for the good, fight to protect the weak, but we do so with God as our Savior. No earthly man, no earthly society as our Savior. Now, what I like about chapter 4 here is Solomon really doesn't propose solutions to these dysfunctional aspects of human relations other than with that emotional outburst about oppression, about wishing that they were all dead, all dead, never have existed. That's pretty sad. But yet, that isn't a reasonable recommendation for solving the problem, so I don't take that seriously. But nowhere else does he really. He, he, he just declares them to be wrong. They're dysfunctional. And so he, in the end, uh, pokes us in the eye, those of us that want, would want to seek some political utopia on this earth. We ought to know better. We ought to know better. And so he doesn't tolerate us not knowing. The one that most confounds him is oppression. And I believe it probably most confounds all of us. It is just so sad, uh, so uh, gut-wrenching to see people being abused and mistreated by other people, especially when it's done in mass like it has been. But it's our elevation of political leaders to godlike status that ultimately results in that. So he points out that we are to seek friends, to seek relationships for mutual assistance, for comfort, for safety. And he points to the, the fact that that labor is not in vain. That labor is worth it. 
there are right ways to live in this world, and having and maintaining friendships is one of them. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Solomon's experience and for his having recorded it. Uh, it is perhaps puzzling at times to ferret out the meaning behind what he's written in Ecclesiastes. But Lord, uh, life, this is a metaphor for life. And so we thank you that though life is confusing and though we can get ourselves into situations where it's difficult to tell up from down and right from wrong, that your word will always be an aid to that end. And we pray, Father, for our society. We pray for the lost that fill it, uh, the people that uh, have... Uh, worship-like reverence for the cult of celebrities that fill our land. Uh, We pray against them, Lord. We pray that you would undermine this, that you would direct people to you as being the only person in this world worthy of worship. Thank you now. We ask you to uh, hear our prayer and to grant us a wonderful time of fellowship. And we thank you, Lord, for this day and for all of your many blessings. In Christ's name, amen.